0: So we have been in Colossians. This will be week three of Colossians. (laughs) I have it right in front of me, and I couldn't even remember. You guys did. Um, So I have really been enjoying it. It's wonderful to get a part of seeing a letter. This is a 2,000-year-old letter written to the church in Colossae. We'll do a little review together. Last Sunday, we were in this huge section about Jesus and who He is and His power and His glory. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, Hopefully, if you didn't get a chance, that message is up online. Uh, at anthologychurch.com, as always, or you can subscribe on iTunes as well. Uh, It's there. Uh, Today, we're going to have a message titled, Sacrificing for What You Love. It's from the last part of Colossians 1 and the very first part of chapter 2. kind of flows together. And So I'm going to read that, um, and then I'll pray. I'll make sure to pray for Ron, and we'll pray for our time together, okay? All right, here we go. Of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we uh, come before you uh, thankful um, that your word speaks uh, to us. This 2,000-year-old letter is not just a letter written by man, uh, but is you speaking to us, speaking to them, the Colossian Church back then, but because it's living and active, speaking to us today as well. Uh, We pray for Ron, our brother, who is going through pain I assume I'm sure with the gallbladder issues because of the food poisoning we ask for healing Lord if the doctors take out uh, his gallbladder for surgery we ask for wisdom for the doctors that you guide their hands and keep him safe throughout the surgery Uh, help us as a church to know how we can care for him and bless him and we pray that you comfort him with your love and your goodness and we pray now that you would teach us all as we read Paul's words and we pray you would speak to us clearly in Jesus name amen Alright. Well, you know, a lot of people today uh, say, maybe you have friends like this, when you talk to people around L.A. or some of the friends or work, wherever you might be, a lot of people today say they're opposed to religion. Have you heard this before? You may have heard something like that. It's common today to see stories that are focusing on religious extremism. It's called as a great source of problems in our society today. Uh, And beyond that, many people look at religion as systems or places filled with hypocrites, right? And who wants to be around a lot of people who say one thing and do a totally different thing? Uh, I certainly don't most of the time, uh, and a lot of other people don't. Uh, I have lots of friends who are not followers of Jesus in L.A. and beyond uh, who I've heard say things like, I don't like organized religion. Have you guys heard that before? Sometimes I want to joke back, well, great, our church is really unorganized, we would, be, we would be perfect for you. You should come. <laughs> you should have that bumper sticker. <laughs> I don't like and organized. And, Great, we're really unorganized. You know, unorganized. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a deeper thing going on when people say that. Obviously, they're not just talking about, you know, if you start on time and things like that. But often modern people look at religion, and Christianity in particular, as demanding far too much of your life and far too much of your time. Christianity says you can't do things that you really want to do, so why bother with it, some people say. It calls me to sacrifice so much of who I am and what I want to do, so why would I want to do that? Maybe you feel that way yourself or know people who have. Well, step out with me, if you will, from the spiritual realm for just a second and think about uh, this principle. I'll say, this, and this is, I, don't, I think this is a spiritual one, but also not a spiritual one, but we sacrifice for what we love. We sacrifice for what we love. Every one of us, when we love or treasure something, we make sacrifices of our time, our money, our talents in order to get more of that thing or in order to serve that thing, if you will. We take, let's take a few examples here. There's lots we could do, but let's take, this one will probably make sense to a lot of people. Um, Let's take an Olympic athlete, for instance. It's very easy to see with an Olympic athlete um, that they love and treasure certain things and so they sacrifice a lot of things to get to that goal so they're probably treasuring or valuing or whatever word you want to lay on it getting in part at least getting a gold medal right representing your country the honor of of you know conquering being the best in the world whatever it might be maybe it's just you know standing up there and 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 representing your country could be driven by pride you know i want to prove i'm better than everyone else in the world who knows what could be uh, behind that, but Olympic athletes make ton of sacrifices of time, potentially money, and certainly talents. Maybe they have other talents or jobs they've been a part of, but they take a lot of time out to do things. If you watch any of the Sochi Olympics, you know NBC kind of puts in those montages of, you know, here's. I remember one was a, um, a, a a mom. I think she was a loser. You know, the going down the whole track thing, and she had. Uh, she had just fallen short of a medal, I think, in, four or eight years ago, and she was back for one more go at it, and her whole family moved to Utah to be able to practice uh, there. And she ended up winning, I think, silver, if I remember. I can't remember her name uh, correctly, but huge, inspiring um, stories about giving up certain things in order to obtain something else because of your love for that thing. That's easy probably to see, but what are some more pedestrian examples kind of for us as normal people, unless you're an Olympic la- athlete, then I commend you. Um, but I- I'd love to hear about that because I didn't know. But let's take this, working out, in just, just in general. Um, in the same way, working out uh, is an easy place to see how we make sacrifices of time and money, right? Gym memberships, especially in L.A., they cost a lot of money. And depending on what gym you go to can cost really a lot of money, Uh, Yoga studios aren't cheap. Those are super popular. And anyone been to Lululemon? You may or may not have. Those pants that they sell, those yoga pants are definitely not cheap. And I kind of wish I had invented Lululemon uh, pants. I'd be, yeah, I'd be, yeah, right. They got defective ones. That's right. I'd be fabulously wealthy now. But in all seriousness, working out takes a good amount of time, right? If you really dedicate yourself uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do. And if you're working your body hard, I remember this when I played football in high school. When you really worked yourself out hard, it hurts. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't in the moment feel like wonderful. You do get endorphins later, but it does create no pain, no gain, you hear. So why do we do it? Well, it's often driven potentially by our image, by how we look, how we feel, what it might be there. Uh, there could be health reasons to it, of course. But it's easy to see that we make sacrifices, uh, and it takes a lot of money to do it and time to do it if we're really going to be in good shape and if we're going to uphold some sort of image that may or may not be a good thing. So let's think of another example, dating and hooking up culture. If you may have heard, if you don't know what hooking up is, we could talk about it uh, another time. Uh, But think about the dating scene. If you're single, if you're not single, try to think back to when you were single and dating. Um, that may or may not be a long uh, time ago. But you make all kinds of changes to yourself, right, when you're dating someone. You make sacrifices to look nice. You spend time on, if you, you know, if you're, it doesn't always work this way now, but you may spend time paying for a meal, buying flowers, um, you know, doing something for the other person, thinking about what the other person thinks. Why? Um, why do you make those sacrifices? Is someone forcing you to spend your money and your time to look like that or be... Near that person, of course not. We make those sacrifices because we treasure being in love or the thought of being with someone or the potential of what it could mean to have a lifelong friend. Um, Or in a hookup culture, it could, of course, be driven by sexual desire um, and getting that fulfilled. And It takes tons of amount of time and money to date. Um, There are dating websites all over the place now. And it can take a big emotional toll on your life potentially too uh, in a culture where people get used or can be used again. So, uh, But many in our culture do it because it feels good and we want to pursue it. So you can see that. Lastly, we'll do one more example. Think about consumerism or consumer uh, uh, mentality. Um, I obviously have an iPad, so I'm with everyone in this example. (laughs) But think about the last thing that you really, really, really wanted to get or really, really wanted to buy. Or maybe you have a hobby that you love doing, you love uh, being a part of. Um, so a lot of people can make tons of sacrifices of time and money for something that they really, really uh, want. They will work up time earning the money, or if it's a hobby, sometimes you'll meet up with other people that do that hobby, or you'll look on that didn't sound good, or you'll look on the uh, internet and find other people doing that hobby uh, or something like that. Um, is anyone forcing you to do this for the next iPhone or next car or next home or whatever it is? No, but we gladly make those sacrifices because we love the object or we want to have that thing. So you see, I think, I think all of us, whether we're spiritual or religious or not, we all make sacrifices for things we truly love and truly treasure. Um, and what else is true when you really, really love something? When you really, really love something and treasure it, sacrifice, doesn't, it doesn't really feel like you're giving up something, does it? If you think about that, you don't really feel like, oh, I'm doing something very hard and giving up something very hard. Because when you really love and treasure something, the value of that thing is so great that sometimes the sacrifice can seem um, not as hard as what it might look like to other people from the outside. Well, we're going to see with the Apostle Paul In these verses, uh, a man who made great sacrifices for God and for the Colossians in particular in this um, book, not because he had to, but because his heart was so utterly captivated by something totally different than his image or a dating relationship or sex or any material thing like an iPad that it might be. So let's talk about, can you imagine Paul with an iPad while he's giving a sermon up there? Um, So let's talk about Paul. Let's see what he says uh, here uh, in this section. First, Paul talks about some great sacrifices that he makes. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about kind of the setup of this. Paul's in a Roman prison at this point because he's been telling people about Jesus. He's under house arrest. Uh, most likely, his friend Epaphras from Colossae visits. Epaphras has started the church after coming to know Jesus. Um, and he comes back and he tells them, here's what's going on in the Colossian church. Um, they are really loving, they have great faith, but there's this thing happening, and there's some false teachers, and here's what's going on. Um, And Paul responds to that. There seems to be some false teaching about someone saying, you need to worship angels, you need to observe these specific religious duties or not do these things. And Paul is concerned, if they really follow this, they're going to end up turning away from Jesus and trusting in something other than him. So Paul goes into this section now, and he's going to remind the Colossians why he is suffering, that he's doing it for them and for a really great reason behind it, because he wants to assure them, "Don't listen to these guys, look how I look at what I'm doing for you and laying out the example that you should follow." Paul wants to assure the Colossians he knows the truth about Jesus, and he's suffering for it, so don't listen to those false teachers who don't really care about you and don't really want your best. So let's see some of the things that Paul says here. I put uh, some of them in yellow. I kind of broke up uh, some of them because they're longer sections. So in verse 124, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So he says, I'm suffering for you. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil. You don't use that word a lot, but toil is a, it's a hard struggle, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. And in 2 verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. So Paul's saying he suffers a lot. He toils greatly for them, not with his own energy, but with that energy that God supplies, which, by the way, is a great statement on how to live the Christian life. We don't really have time to get into that, but the Christian life is meant to be lived by God's power, not in our own not our own effort, but we'll kind of look more on that another, another time. But the final verses uh, show us that Paul uh, says he has a great struggle for them. And notice he says, for those in Laodicea, and all who have not seen me face-to-face. Remember, we said this before, Paul, Paul has never met the Colossians. And Laodicea is like a nearby suburb, if you will, to Colossae. So think of North Hollywood for Studio City, or think of Burbank, or, or there's another place called Areopolis, which we'll see later on. They were all kind of suburbs of Colossae. And so Paul, in addressing this letter, is actually, there's probably... Churches that meet in each of those places, and Paul's kind of addressing to this whole region. So, if you're wondering who are those guys, those are—it's just the church next door, the the guys next door. Um, but it's amazing. He's saying how much he cares for them. Um, see how much Paul is saying—he goes through for them. Uh, he's sacrificing for their good. And I just think this this is a great thing that I want to be true of my life as a pastor. And what I want to be true of every pastor's life that ever comes through Anthology and for Steve, uh, even though he's not here. But Paul shows great care, pastoral care for the Colossians. And he's never even met them. You know, these are people he's never even seen face to face, but he cares for them. He's struggling for them and he wants to know. You can almost see, feel the emotion that's going on uh, in this letter. And this is really how we're... Uh, called to be as well. So if you don't see me being like this, uh, call me up and tell me <laughs> that. So Paul tells us then in the next part what he's working for, what he's toiling for, what he's sacrificing for. In and, and 128 he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then the next verse, or the one that's up there, 2-4, he says, I say this so no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul says he's working, warning, teaching everyone so that people, everyone who follows Jesus in Colossae would mature in Christ. Just like you can be a physical person like we all were. <laughs> you are. We're, can't just be a physical person. You are a physical person. But just how a physical person is born as an infant and then over time grows, becomes a, uh, you know, a toddler and then into a Uh, a child, teenager, and so on and so forth. Um, Paul says there's a spiritual reality to our maturity as well. It's possible when you first place your faith in Christ, you're a spiritual infant, if you will, and then hopefully you grow into a spiritual toddler, a spiritual teenager, and then uh, hopefully you mature in Christ. Paul's using kind of the same uh, thing here. And just like it's possible to have people who are in age adults, but are very immature, right? We probably know people like that in your own life. Um, it's, Paul says the same thing is possible in our spiritual maturity. We can actually be hindered and lack uh, spiritual maturity as well. And Paul is saying he's working hard, he's toiling, so they grow up in maturity in their faith. Again, this is a great way for us as Anthology and a call for us as leaders and pastors in Anthology, the two of us, and the other leaders that are a part of the team, um, this is what we should be striving for, every one of us in here. Some people, we, we hope that p- people in anthology, there'll be people who are exploring Jesus and kind of checking him out for the first time. Um, but everyone who is a follower, our calling is to help you guys and ourselves to help each other uh, mature and grow uh, in Christ. That's really part of our calling. And then notice that second part that Paul says, he doesn't want them to be deluded by plausible arguments. This is, this is pretty fascinating to me right? Think about this. Paul is saying it's really important. He's saying false teaching, wrong teaching about Jesus and who he is and what he's done in Christianity can actually be plausible. It can actually be logical and make, make sense. Um, uh, there can be logical arguments behind it. Just because someone makes a good argument about what the Bible says or doesn't say and seems logically true doesn't actually make it true, Paul is telling us in a sense. Um, it's so important because you really can. You can find any church or any religion that has some piece of Christianity or has something to do with Jesus, and you can really find just about anything said <laughs> about uh, anything. Uh, but Paul says, just because it's plausible and makes sense does not make it true. So this begs the question, what what then is a foundation that we can actually hope in and trust in? Um, how can we know what's true about Jesus? Um, how can we know how we actually can mature in Christ if that's what Paul says we should be doing? Um, well, one of the things that makes you mature in Christ is being able to hear some, some teaching, something about Jesus, something about Christianity, and you're able to go, ah, no, I know that's not right because I know why. How are we able to say that? Because I know what the scriptures say or I know the scriptures well enough I can point out that that's not true. So the only ultimate final authority that we have is the scriptures, uh, we believe, the Old and the New Testaments. Teachers help us, so hopefully I'm helpful (laughs) for you guys. Other people, people who write books, um, other pastors, other people, friends, family, we should be helping each other. They're helpful. Church history is helpful, what's happened for 2,000 years in the history of the church, what has been believed for 2,000 years in the history of church and not believed. But the ultimate and only ultimate foundation we really have is the Bible itself. That's one of the reasons, if you guys wonder, um, why we, at Anthology, we tend to go through books. Like for Christmas, at our Christmas gatherings, we did what are called topical messages. So we took a message on hope, and message on peace, and, and we kind of jumped around different places. But for the most part, we tend to go through books of the Bible. So Jonah, Mark, Luke, now Colossians, and so on. Because we, Steve and I, are attempting to show you that... The foundation is not primarily what we say and how clever we are to talk about hope or peace or or whatever it is or wisdom, and we can come up with it, but we want we 're trying to say the foundation where we get truth, where we get um, everything we believe comes from the scriptures. The power is in those and not in uh, us, so really we 're not trying to say anything novel up here; we need to apply it to our context and you know twenty two thousand and fourteen so we think differently than other people have thought throughout millennia. Uh, but Steve and I, what we're trying to do up here is just point to what's revealed in the scriptures, which is another reason we teach the way that we do. And Paul's doing that here for the Colossians. Uh, and since Paul's an apostle, he's been hand-selected by Jesus. Uh, Jesus appeared to him personally after the resurrection. And so Paul's words are have just as much authority as Jesus' words uh, because of what he said. So we actually believe... The, the words in black have the same authority as the words in red. If you have a red letter uh, Bible, so but continuing on with Paul's suffering, um, Paul just alludes to his suffering. He says he's struggling, says he's toiling, uh, but he doesn't really give us like what's really going on. Um, but his suffering and his struggle is actually greater than any one of us have ever had. I assume um, it's not merely being called names or ignorant that Paul's going through, or someone's saying, you're an idiot for believing in Jesus, or whatever. It's not something primarily like that. He's going through some really significant suffering. It's not being called intolerant or backwards or ridiculous. Uh, but we're going to see what he goes through. So actually, Paul helps us, well, the rest of the scriptures help us out. In the second letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes, he actually kind of lists out some of the things he was going through. Um, so this is Second Corinthians 1, uh, 8 through 9, and here's the first part, and then I'll read the part later on in the book. So here's what Paul says to the Corinthians, um, the church in Corinth, in case you're wondering. Uh, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, which uh, Colossae is a part of that. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So whatever was going on, the suffering that Paul experienced that he was talking about with the Corinthians, that he thought he was going to die at one point, what was going on. So then he goes on to another place in chapter 11. Here's a longer section. Paul is, again, trying to defend himself before some other apostles who are like, Paul's not a real apostle. He's lame. And Paul's saying, okay, you saying that? Here's what I've gone through. So he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He He says he sounds prideful, but here he goes. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. He was beaten uh, five times with 39 lashes. Uh, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Stoned means rocks were picked up and thrown at him. (laughs) Uh, A lot. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, non-Jews. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. (laughs) And he goes on to say a lot more. He says, on top of all that stuff, I'm worried about the Colossians and they're getting this teaching and the Galatians are hearing this thing and everybody's got got all this anxiety. So he's going through... A ton it's just a crazy list when you really think about it. Uh, and the Corinthians uh, doesn't include all that happened to him later in life as well. this is one of the earlier letters he wrote. so he went on to experience a lot more. From church history we know that Paul was released from his Roman imprisonment that he had when he wrote Colossians. probably about five to six years later he probably went to Rome, uh, excuse me he went to Spain probably, told people about Jesus there and then eventually came back to Rome arrested again, and he was eventually beheaded by Nero, the emperor of Rome in AD 67, probably seven, six years after he wrote the Colossian letter. So Paul actually suffered the greatest suffering in the end. Um, He lost his life in telling people about Jesus. Now, people in L.A. a lot of times think spirituality is nice. It's a nice, comfortable part of your life. Uh, We understand praying occasionally Uh, Going to church every once in a while. But faith is kind of seen as something very private. Uh, Certainly nothing you get extreme about and crazy about. And that mindset, this this looks like, makes absolutely no sense at all, right? Living like Paul does right here. It just looks crazy. It looks extreme. It looks mad. It's like, what are you doing? Aren't you going a little overboard, Paul? So what is really uh, going on here? Uh, Is he just being a little too extreme? Well, Paul tells us a few verses back um, one of the amazing reasons why he's going through all this. So going back to the beginning of our Colossians verse, he says he rejoices in his sufferings uh, for the sake of the Colossians because he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, for the church, for people that know Jesus. Now, that's a really weird way. Paul does this. He's hard to understand. That's a really weird way to phrase your suffering, right? Because on the surface, it kind of sounds like Jesus didn't do enough on the cross when he suffered. And so Paul's kind of got to make that up and do more, filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. It sounds like what Jesus did wasn't uh, enough. Well, if we compare that to the rest of the scriptures and just the rest of what Paul says, we can figure out that's absolutely not what Paul means here that somehow Jesus was lacking what he did on the cross. You could even look at the rest of Colossians like and just the verses we did before this. He fully finished the work, he completed it. Uh, the work of Jesus on the cross is final, finishes everything we need for life and forgiveness and being bought, brought back to God. there's nothing lacking at all from what Jesus did and if you guys remember I don't think we looked at this in Luke during our time there, but On the cross, in Luke, Jesus yells out at the end, it is finished, uh, before he gives up his life. We can never add to Jesus' work and what he's done. Um, And that's actually one of the things that separates uh, Christianity from almost every other religion. Um, A lot of times when people look at religions, they go, ah, they're kind of all the same, they have the same morals, which is actually true. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of the same morals across uh, lots of religions. But one of the things that's distinct in Christianity from the other ones is it's not our obedience. It's not our work that saves us. False versions of Christianity say Jesus has done some of the work and then you have to obey and do the rest of the work um, or you won't be rescued by God. Other religions say it's your obedience and you getting all the rules together and doing everything that saves you. Eastern religions tend to focus on kind of ridding yourself of all desire. You've got to get rid of all desire for bad things, and then you'll be brought into uh, paradise. But Christianity is wholly different. It says it isn't our obedience at all that rescues us and saves us. In fact, um, our obedience is so tainted by the false. Remember that list we talked about before? We talked about uh, working out and image um, and dating and having a relationship and wanting to be with someone and consumers and things. The scriptures say it's not wrong to want to buy something that's nice, um, good, because I have an iPad. Um, So it's not wrong to want to have a relationship with someone. It's not even wrong to want to have sex. It's not wrong to work out, take care of your body and things. But what's wrong with us is we make those into over-desires. Those become little gods for us that we want them too badly, too much. So we take good things and they become ultimate things in our hearts. And so the scriptures say we're too messed up. We, we, we mess up in even the simplest way, but it's fully the work of Jesus, his obedience, and simply trusting him that rescues us. Every other religion says it's up to you. Christianity says it was Jesus, and we just trust him. So what the heck does Paul mean? This lacking, filling up what's lacking in, in uh, Christ's afflictions if he doesn't mean Jesus was lacking something. Most commentators think something like this. The Colossians and others around the Roman Empire had never actually seen Jesus' ministry. Right? They lived thousands of miles away. Just like us, they weren't there when Jesus went around and did all the stories and did all the healings and things. They weren't there when Jesus died on the cross, and you know, more importantly, uh, after that rose from the dead to prove what he did and everything. So they've never seen it physically with their own eyes. And that's true for every person in the world today, right? No one can go back. No one's got a time machine, right? They can go back. Mr. Peabody does, but uh, uh, no one else does. That's a movie joke. Um, So so here's the question then. How are people going to know what Jesus went through, how he suffered for them to come to know God? Well, one of the ways, of course, we already talked about it, the ultimate way even is the scriptures, because it's the story that tells us of how God did it and why he did it and how Jesus did it. So we always go back to the scriptures. But Paul is saying something else really powerful here. He's saying, in some sense, at least some form, when any other person who's a follower of Jesus takes on some measure of suffering, some measure of hardship, some measure of stress or strain for the sake of another person in their life coming to know Jesus or being brought close to them or whatever it might be, in some sense, that's helping present to people what Jesus went through in his suffering. So this, this, in, in some sense, it's saying to them, this Jesus we're telling you about, he is real. And my suffering, my hardship, my life makes no sense unless he really is real and who he said he was. It's an extremely, really challenging thought for me and I think for all of us if we really think about it. In the way you're living your life, in the way you make sacrifices in your life, Could someone look at it and go, your life makes no sense in the way you live unless Jesus is real and really the God of the universe and actually died and actually rose from the dead? It's really challenging to think about for me anyway. When followers of Jesus suffer and go through hard times so that others could see Jesus, know him, then like Paul, we're filling up what's lacking in Jesus' suffering. What's lacking is people seeing it, seeing a personal expression of it, in front of them, so they can see there must be the way you're living, there must be something true about what you're saying because it doesn't make any sense what you're doing and how you're living your life. That's what Paul's doing for them. So, the last question to close is um, what did Paul see that helped him sacrifice like this? What did he love so much? Because we sacrifice for what we love. So, what did Paul see that helped him? sacrifice so much like this what did he love so much and i'll just call it the mystery of christ um, because i think that's what paul calls it here (laughs) so paul says here he calls it the mystery of christ this is what captivated him so much let's look at what he says so in the middle section of our first verses in verse 26 starting out there he says the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery that Paul so caught up in was hidden for ages and generations, he says, but it's now been revealed to his saints. And this is not saints we get caught up because of our kind of where our culture's at. We can think this means. Uh, usually hear what the Catholic Church names different saints and their people, heroes of the faith and people that have suffered or done great things. You know, I think John Pope John Paul II just got made a saint uh, by the Catholic Church. And then um, one other pope, right? can't remember who it was. 23rd. There you go, Paul the 23rd. Um, this is not how the New Testament uses saints, and that's not how Paul's using it here. Paul means a saint is someone that just means holy, set apart. Um, so... What it means in the New Testament, and in the Bible, is any person who's a follower of Jesus. Because any person who's a follower of Jesus has been made forgiven, holy, and so when Paul says saint, he means Christian. So this mystery has been made known to all Christians, all followers of Jesus. But it was hidden for ages and generations. So what's Paul, what does he mean? What's he referring to there? Well, he's speaking of the whole history of God's people up to this point which was Israel, the Jews, for the most part, were God's people. Uh, and that mystery has now been made known. What is it? It's Christ in us, or in this case, Christ in the Colossians, Jesus in the, the hope of God's glory being given to the Colossians. So this is, we have to step back here because this doesn't make, <coughs> still doesn't make a whole lot of sense and see how radical it is. But up to this point in history, God's people were only those who were the, part of the ethnic nation of Israel, ethnic Jewish people. And there were a couple instances of anyone that joined along, joined in Israel, they weren't Jews, but they joined along and started worshipping Yahweh and started following the Old Testament law. But for the most part, if you were a Gentile, like most of us, or I assume maybe all of us in this room are, a non-Jew, someone like a Colossian, you were totally excluded from worship of God and knowing God and who he was and what, and being close to him. You could worship from afar, maybe, but you if you wanted to try and hope in Yahweh, but you were a dirty Gentile, ultimately, not able to go into the temple, not able to worship God. You were excluded. But throughout the whole Old Testament, God's people, Israel, continually fail to live up to God's law. Uh, they continually turn away from him. Then he rescues them over and over. Then they fail and turn away. He rescues them again, shows them his love. They fail and turn away and don't stay faithful. And it goes on again and again. That's the whole story of the... Old Testament, summed up right there. He gives them a sacrificial system to show them, look, your sin is so bad, blood has to be spilled to forgive the sin that you've gone through. We have to show you uh, how serious sin is, and this is one way to show it. But there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that say, one day, the Messiah will come. He will truly be your king. He will be the one to finally unite your hearts to God He will put himself, God will put himself inside of you so that you're able to obey and stop this whole back and forth um, craziness. And he'll make the final sacrifice. All the sacrificial system in the temple and stuff, he'll make the final one so that it doesn't need to be done ever again. And the Old Testament says the Gentiles will hope in him. They will trust in him, which a lot of times the um, Jewish people in Jesus' day looked over. So the Jews awaited this Messiah, and again, if you talk to Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews today, they're still awaiting um, the Messiah to come. But Paul tells us the Messiah has come. And the mystery that all the Jews didn't understand for all that time was that God's plan was to pay the final sacrifice with his life on the cross to raise the Messiah from the dead, and that from that moment on, anyone that trusted in him, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, would be welcome to be one of God's people. It was no longer excluded to an ethnic people. It was open to every ethnicity, every type of people, every man, every woman, every uh, and anyone in the world. Now the gates of God's goodness are open to the entire world, and the Messiah comes to live inside our hearts, just like he does for any Jew today that trusts in Jesus and did back then. So Paul is saying, we didn't understand this before. This was a mystery We thought the Messiah was just for us Jews. And then it gets revealed that it's for the whole entire world. And now God lives inside of us. and He lives inside of you, Colossians. You you dirty Gentiles. He's inside of you. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Just like he's done for us, the Jews, for so long. This is the mystery. Christ inside of us. Jesus now lives inside of any person who trusts in him. Uh, We hear his voice, not literally. You may, but. More so through the scriptures in our hearts uh, and through prayer. He's near to us, shows his loves, Give us all, his, all the promises of the Old and New Testament are his, we're his people now, uh, and he'll never leave us. This is the mystery that captivated Paul. Uh, look how he says it again in the next section. That's the verse we get the theme from um, for the whole series. God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's mystery is Jesus. In Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the universe, and now he lives inside of each one of us. Who is God? What's God like? Why is he such a mystery? Why doesn't he make himself obvious to everyone? Answer, he has. It's Jesus. All the mysteries of God are found in him. This is why Paul made such great sacrifices for people. He was totally caught up And God, he's making himself known everywhere. And the gates are totally wide open. Anyone can know him and his grace and his mercy. And he was so captivated by what God was doing that he was willing to make all kinds of sacrifices like we saw. So in conclusion, guys, how can we make sacrificial choices for other people? How can we live radically like Paul did in ways that won't feel like we're losing our lives as if we're making such a huge sacrifice. How can we make good use of our time, our money, our talents, our reputations, so that others can see this wonderful God who will redeem them and live in them and give them everything? Well, it's only by seeing the treasure of this mystery of how great our sin and brokenness is and how we often make so many Sacrifices for so many other things aren't really worth our time as much and aren't really worth our heart and our our love. But He moved heaven and earth to bring Himself back to us. It's getting caught up in that mystery that God lives inside of you, not because of how good you are, because of His grace and goodness. The God who didn't need to let us in at all because of what we've done and because we were dirty Gentiles and far from Him has come near to show His love. People think Christianity is hard and burdensome, it's just a bunch of rules. Boring, hard, don't want to do it. Uh, But that's only when you don't see the treasury that Jesus is behind it. From the outside, it looks like foolishness and madness. From the inside, it looks like it's all we can do to follow this amazing God and what he's done. When this happens in our hearts, when we're captivated and working, uh, and then working out an image just become what they are, sex becomes a wonderful gift, but not our life and what we have to have. Kids become a wonderful blessing, that can lead, help lead us to God, and we can help lead them to God, but they don't become our whole obsession. Our possessions are just tools we can use, the things we have to make much of him. Dating and, our, and finding a spouse become pursuing best friends that we can pursue our one true love with, Jesus um, and God. So may God show us the mystery of Christ so clearly and wonderfully in our hearts so that we, like Paul, live sacrificially for others, in our church and here in Studio City and our lives. So let me pray.